Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. We're going to talk about pedal stroke with our athletes, but at a period of time, if somebody's been doing this for 10 to 15 years, that gets a little redundant. They're going to tune you out on that. Uh, a lot of what we end up doing is, is specific workouts and training in order to develop that neuromuscular recruitment in order to lay down those patterns. You know, the, the studies that are out on how our nerves work and how those things go on is the more that we use the pathway, the more myelin we lay over those neuron sheets and the, and the faster that signal is going to travel to the mus- musculature. If you're doing the wrong thing over and over again, you're going to lay a really efficient pathway through that neuromuscular system the wrong way. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk, the VeloNews training podcast. I'm Kaylee Fretz, and in today's episode, we'll explain how to teach your legs to stop fighting themselves. We spend a lot of time focusing on VO2 max, lactate threshold, and body weight. But there's a way to get better on a bike that doesn't show up on tests. How? By training proper muscle firing patterns. It's called neuromuscular training, and it is vitally important, but often misunderstood. With me today is Coach Trevor Connor, as always, and a special guest, Grant Holicky, a coach at Apex Coaching and an expert in neuromuscular training. Let's make you fast. All right, so in my in my usual role as village idiot, I'm going to be particularly idiotic today because this this is a subject matter that flies way way over my my head and my understanding of physiology. So we're going to be leaning heavily on Trevor and Grant for this particular episode, and we're going to start with the basics. So, Grant, let's let's turn to you first. Can you provide a definition that I will understand of neuromuscular training? So, in neuromuscular training, what we're trying to do is Increase the economy, or for lack of a better way to say it, the efficiency of your legs and how they're pedaling the bike. So this is one of those things that's going to show up year after year. Despite how you're training in that particular season, the ability to turn the legs over well with high economy uh, quickly and all of those things on the bike are going to be able to give you an opportunity to increase power output uh, and hold that power for longer periods of time. So we covered this, our very first podcast, we talked about what separates an amateur from a pro. And if you've listened to that, or if you remember back to that podcast, we, we pointed out that things like VO to max don't really improve. You don't really see a, a, that big an improvement in max power. But one of the places where you really saw pros differentiate themselves from amateurs is in this neuromuscular recruitment. As Grant said, if you become more economical or efficient, we're going to use them interchangeably here. <laughs> Which apparently we shouldn't. <laughs> I will let my geekiness... There, there, was some, there was some off-mic debate before this podcast <laughs> began. Uh, well, not really debate, just Trevor being... Trevor. Uh, <laughs> so for they're purpose not of, the same. They're not, economy and efficiency are not the same thing. Trevor, if it'll make you feel better, why don't you tell us what the difference is before we continue on? And we will cut this out. No, no, no. <laughs> we're, not, we're not cutting this out. Trevor, explain, explain to us what the difference is so that we can then use them, inter- them interchangeably. Specifically, efficiency is the degree to which internal energy is converted to external energy. So we only use about 25% of the energy we actually generate, or only about 25% of it goes into the bike. 
The more of it that you can put into the bike, the less that you lose as heat, the more efficient you are. Economy is the actual movement itself. Being able to do the work with a movement pattern that requires less energy. So if any of you are big Monty Python fans like me, you might have seen that skit where they had the center for unusual walking. Hmm. And you watch them do all these crazy walks to move across the floor. Those are very uneconomical walks. (laughs) (laughs) Where if you watch people who are much older who say have a hip injury, they actually learn to become very economical and kind of slide their feet in, in their movement because They've lost a lot of strength, so they really don't have a lot of energy to put into their walks. So that's economy. When we're talking about neuromuscular training, using your muscles better, actually improving your your pedal stroke, that's actually, there is some efficiency involved there, but it's actually more economy, improving your economy. Okay. With that, with that behind us uh we will continue (laughs) (laughs) we will continue to use them mostly interchangeably uh for the purposes of this discussion we will use them interchangeably we will will use them interchangeably uh i hope that doesn't bother any of the you know phd physiologists out there too much but the key point here is when they compare amateurs and pros one of the biggest things to differentiate pros is far far better neuromuscular recruitment patterns can you expand upon that? Did you, did you, you look for a study? I'm the anal retentive one. <laughs> I, I, I might have sort of that. It makes me feel comfortable because that's Neil's role in Apex. And, and, and when he's not here, I feel kind of lost. If, if somebody's not lecturing me on efficiency versus economy. And... So don't tell, any, tell Neil this, but when I was managing Rio, three of our athletes were being coached by Neil. Uh-huh. And they nicknamed me Neil with heart rate. <laughs> so they're like, you are just like Neil, except he gives everything in wattage. You give everything oh, in heart fantastic. rate. <laughs> that's fantastic. This is all going in the podcast. Oh, probably. God, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Okay, so we know what it is. Can you guys explain to me as uh, to the village idiot, as you do, uh, why this is important? For what I do, and especially in the season that we're in, uh, talking about cyclocross and talking about um, cycling training, the ability to have that smooth, quick reacting pedal stroke, the ability to bring the cadence up quickly and the ability to pedal at a high cadence. Um, one of the big things that, that, that I tend to notice as a coach is that newer cyclists tend to pedal in that lower cadence range. Uh, they're mashing the pedals a little bit. It feels like you're putting more power out. Uh, it feels like there's more resistance on your legs, but the fatigue on your legs is high. So uh, riding at that higher cadence allows us to react quicker to what goes on around us, accelerate faster, things along those lines. And having that ability and high economy of neuromuscular recruitment allows us to pedal a little bit at that higher cadence. And it's, it's going to really help our riding dramatically. So looking at it from a physiological standpoint, and this is actually one of my favorite analogies to give because people really, uh, really like this one. The way I like to think of it is picture doing a bicep curl because this is a really simple motion. There's really just one muscle involved. Imagine you have a bicep that is strong enough to curl 40 pounds. Now imagine every time you try to curl a weight, your triceps activate and basically fight that motion. So you might be strong enough to curl 40, but your max lift is only going to be 20 pounds because your tricep is actually fighting you. 
that fighting, when muscles fight one another, that effect is called coactivation. In a simple motion like that, that sounds ridiculous, and, and that isn't going to happen. When you're thinking about the pedal stroke on a bike, we have over a dozen muscles that are involved, often having to, to fire more than once through the, the, the full circle of the pedal stroke. You have a lot of coactivation. So you have a lot of your muscles actually fighting one another. And one really interesting study that they did a few years ago, they compared the co uh, level of coactivation in amateur cyclists to professional cyclists. And you actually saw six times as much coactivation in the, or six times longer coactivation in amateurs than in pros. So essentially, their own muscles are fighting themselves and they're losing probably 20, 30 watts just from all that coactivation. If you can train your muscles to fire in a better pattern and not fight each other, you don't have to get any stronger and your wattage is going to go up. That's why it's so valuable. And this is what I was referring to in the intro when I said your legs fighting themselves, basically. Yeah, and, and, and not only that ability to produce more watts, it you, your ability to hold that wattage for longer. And that may even come into it a, as, as a bigger effect. The more you're fighting against yourself and that co-activation is going on, the quicker we're going to break down because we're just not going to be able to hold that for as long. Right, that's a really good point because when you have two muscles fighting one another, one is being forcefully lengthened and you start getting tearing and that's going to cause you to fatigue very rapidly. Is that the source of, well, for example, if I uh, do my one annual run and I go and I run three miles <laughs> and I can't move for like a week and a half afterward, is that some of the source of that pain that, that my legs are essentially not uh, not particularly economical? Well, you definitely have some of that going on. You know, it might be that off-season 10 to 15 pounds you gained as well. Um, you know, <laughs> know, a, lot know. Of, <laughs> a lot of those things. Yeah, well, any anytime you're not doing a movement with regularity, you're going to lose that muscle economy. And especially for somebody who hasn't ever run a lot, say. Um, you know, somebody's background is triathlon or they grew up running. They're going to be able to go out for a run and have less of that soreness, less of that breakdown than somebody who doesn't run very often and never did. And this is one of the great things about neuromuscular training that I'm sure we'll touch on more is that it is something you can retain from year to year. You know, it's funny, uh, coaches will, and, and athletes especially get into this mindset. If they take two weeks off, they've lost everything. But at the same time, they're going to turn and look at a seasoned athlete and go, well, they've got all that years of base, years of base, years of base. Years of base doesn't really exist. You know, if you lose your fitness, you lose your fitness. But you can retain the efficiency of movement, the economy of movement, and, and that pedal stroke and that ability to have the pedal stroke is going to serve you year after year after year, especially early season. So a really important thing, though, with the neuromuscular side is a lot of people just think, okay, well, if I do a lot of riding, uh, I'm going to learn that, that firing pattern. I'm going to improve the neuromuscular side. So back in 2008, there was this great study out of Brazil where they addressed that question. So they took high-level elite or even pro-level cyclists and compared them to triathletes. So they found very high-level triathletes who are putting in about the same number of hours per week on the bike as the, these high-level cyclists. The difference is you don't see a ton of neuromuscular training in a lot of triathletes. It's just not something they focus on because they have so many other things they work on, where all these cyclists were doing neuro, uh, a lot of neuromuscular work, uh, specific neuromuscular work. 
and then compared them again for the co-activation. And what you saw was, yes, the cyclists looked very much like the pros from the study I told you about a couple of minutes ago. The triathletes looked like the amateur cyclists. They had very high levels of co-activation. You really see saw poor neuromuscular recruitment patterns. So just doing time on the bike didn't teach it. Yeah, it's similar to technical ability. You know, that's been something we've talked about. Not to disparage the triathletes out there, but oh, we don't really mind. This is why I coach some of them. I don't want. To. <laughs> um, but you know, triathletes do spend a lot of time in the aero bars, and they they spend a ton of time on the bike. Time on the bike doesn't make you necessarily technically sound. It doesn't make your ability to accelerate quickly inherent. Uh, those are the things that you have to focus on put effort and time into and consistently train. So my, uh, I have an old school bike racing dad. And, uh, when he was teaching me how to ride when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old and, and, and starting to race a little bit, you know, he would always tell me, you know, you kick over the top of the stroke and you, and you pretend that you're scraping mud off your shoe across the bottom. Is that the sort of thing that we're talking about here? Or is this a little bit more specific work and, and more than just, thinking about a good pedal stroke um we definitely you know we're going to talk about pedal stroke with our athletes but uh, at a period of time if somebody's been doing this for 10 to 15 years that gets a little redundant they're going to tune you out on that Uh, a lot of what we end up doing is is specific workouts and training in order to develop that neuromuscular recruitment in order to lay down those patterns you know, the, the studies that are out on how our nerves work and how those things go on is the more that we use the pathway, the more myelin we lay over those neuron sheets and the, and the faster that signal is going to travel to the mus- musculature. And, and this goes back even to what Trevor was saying before about just time on the bike. If you're doing the wrong thing over and over again, you're going to lay a really efficient pathway through that neuromuscular system the wrong way. So we have to really go out and get out of what we're used to for some people and create workouts and create sessions that are built around specifically training this from a physiological standpoint, not just from a mental standpoint. So well, I'll just quickly add to that. One of the, the ways I actually identify somebody who has really bad neuromuscular recruitment patterns is not so much trying to look at where they're applying the power through the pedal stroke, um, but I especially look at when they try to do high cadence. So I was, I was running a, a trainer session last winter and I had a lot of athletes of very different levels come in and I would do cadence drills with them. And I would see the, the people that had the bad neuromuscular uh, recruitment, a, they couldn't hit very high cadences. And even just at 110, 120 uh, RPM, you would just see them bouncing all over their bike. Cause that's basically the neuromuscular system saying, I can't keep up with this. Um, I can't fire the muscles in, in a good pattern, um, even at this low cadence. So when I started having them do a lot of cadence work, really try to hit those higher cadences and do it uh, while staying smooth on the mic, not bouncing all over the saddle, they actually started seeing a lot of improvements. Yeah, and one other thing you can look at at that is single leg, um, especially on the trainer inside. You know, at Rally Sport, where our studio is, we have the Wahoo Kickers in there, and we'll do single leg stuff at a, at a certain wattage, and you just hear the clunk, 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 clunk around the pedal stroke, or we get 10 seconds of smooth and then there's just sound all over uh, of people ramming an edge of the pedal stroke. So it's, it's, it's quite simple to identify that, whether in yourself or in an athlete. Uh, as Trevor said, 
look at your power meter, see where your cadence is, how much trouble are you having at 120 cadence? How much trouble are you having at a 30 second single leg drill? These are great identifiers of where your neuromuscular patterns are and how economical you are on the bike. I mean, how high should a, a sort of a, a normal road athlete, I mean, we're not talking, you know, track race stars, how, how, how fast should a normal road athlete be able to pedal? I mean, are we talking like if you can't, if you can't comfortably pedal 125 RPM, then you probably have an issue. Well, great, great trackies can hit over 200. No problem. Yep. <laughs> that, that ain't happening in this room. Um, but uh, well, actually, maybe it is. I don't. I don't know how you two pedal. You know, I we we tend to look at trying. You know, some of the workouts we're doing, we're looking at sustained cadences for a minute to a minute and a half at 120 or over. And that 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 to me, 120 RPMs is a bit of a magic number. Can you sustain that for a period of time? We can all hit it. But we're like Trevor said, we're bouncing all over the bike and your legs can't keep up. Um, we look with a lot of our, I, I'd say our high level elites, not even really in the pros, looking for cadence builds up into the 150 to 160 range. That's what we're trying to find and sustain cadences in the 110 to 120. I think this is a fantastic thing to do at the beginning of the year. I think this is true with all cyclists. One of the things you're always trying to prevent is injuries later on, overuse injury, knee problems. And... I think neuromuscular work, which is training the muscles to fire right, combined with some off-the-bike work, like some core work and some weight work, is a really great way right at the start of the season to get your legs ready for the harder work you're going to do later and prevent you from developing injuries. And, and a lot of how we tend to look at this is almost to an extent, and Trevor and I spoke about this a year ago, a reverse periodization in how you look at your season. So many riders, early season, just got to get in the miles, just got to get in the miles, just got to get in the miles. And as we talked about earlier, just getting in the miles doesn't increase economy and doesn't help efficiency. So if we can create something at the beginning of the season where we're forced to be at high cadence, forced to be at high effort, forced to be at high power, even if it's for short periods of time, we're raising that ceiling of what we're going to be capable of from a cadence point of view, from a strength point of view, and from a power point of view. And always having that in the training, I think, and we believe, is going to develop the threshold. It's going to develop VO2 max. going to develop all of those things because, as we discussed at the beginning, you're going to be able to hold that longer. You're going to be able to reach a 20 or 30 watt higher threshold, and you're going to be able to maintain that threshold for a longer period of time. That 20 or 30 watts, is that sort of assuming that a rider is coming off pretty poor economy? Or, is, or are, do you think most riders, if they've never done work like this before... You know, and they're, and they're not track racers or something. Could probably expect that that kind of range. Well, listen. I mean, the the simple fact that we have professional cyclocross athletes that we coach at Apex that are in the top ten in the country that are doing this neuromuscular workout in November mid cyclocross season because we expect to see some sort of a gain from them now. Yeah, this is a this is something that all the population could gain from and you know i don't i don't <laughs> i don't know that any of us are, are ever going to target well yes you'll get 20 watts um <laughs> you know that's that sounds like an infomercial and the only thing that might guarantee you 20 watts is you're in bike motor but that um you know this is one of those things definitely that you're going to see a return on this investment especially if it's regular and and focused so back in 2015, in the spring, uh, Velenews had me review a, a bike trainer 
that had this nice screen that showed your spin scan, how your how smooth your pedal stroke is. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, I, I focus on all this stuff. I race in the pro ranks for God knows how long. I'm going to crush this. <laughs> so I got on it. I launched that spin scan for my first workout. And I had this great figure eight. And I'm like, ooh, what does that mean? And then looked at the instruction manual to, to see what the different shapes mean. It went figure eight. Amateur rider just getting on the bike. <laughs> Didn't like that at all. So now, forget the review for Velo News. I was dedicated. I'm now going to get that nice donut shape. And I really worked on it and did a lot of neuromuscular work. And like I said, this is after 20 plus years of racing. Mm-hmm. Got that donut shape and I had the best spring I had had in years. And it, I hadn't changed anything else about my training. It was that. So even after 20 years, I could still see gains. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Trevor, that's a that's a pretty perfect little transition into how do we learn these things? What are things that people can be doing on a weekly basis or a daily basis? You know, is this the type of thing you can do at the end of every ride, or and what I'm, do these workouts look like? I'm not going to lie to you here. I spoke to Grant about this a year ago, and he gave me a whole ton of workouts that I'm now giving to my athletes. So I'm just going to say, Grant, you had Fair the enough. best workouts I've ever heard. So please. Fair enough. Um, so, you know, when, when when we're approaching this, it's easy. To, we've talked a lot about the high cadence work, and it's easy to focus on the high cadence work. There's, there's two pieces to this. Um, one of the pieces to this is how do we put power into the pedals? So what we tend to do at, at Apex and, and a lot of these to be, you know, completely forthright are, are Neil Henderson's workouts. He's the he's the mad scientist, the geek in uh, the Apex team. I, I won't say he taught me everything I know because I don't want to sound like Kaylee and the village idiot. <laughs> but um, but so so the workouts we tend to put out there um, early and, and, and I'd say early season, but especially right now in cross, when we get a weekend break and we're not racing cadence drills, power drills, all these things. So we're building from both sides. We want to look at how we can get power into the pedal stroke. So one of the workouts we do are big gear sprints. This is something that track riders are absolutely fluent in. Putting the bike in your 53 in the front and your 11, 12, or 13 in the back on a flat road and start from almost a standstill, as slow as you can be. You're probably not going to bust out a track stand. But what you're doing there is you're pulling and pushing with the arms on the bike, you're pulling and pushing on the pedals with the bike, and driving that cadence from super low and high power all the way up to that high cadence pedal stroke up at 100 to 110 that we're looking for. We'll, we'll We'll do a workout with six to eight of those sprints. It's one of those workouts that people walk out of afterwards and go, well, it was, you know, it was kind of hard, but it wasn't really that hard. And then they go try to go upstairs later and they can't really walk up the stairs. <laughs> so it, there's those sneaky hard workouts. On the other side of the coin is, is high cadence stuff. So what Trevor was talking about with some of the cadence pyramids, and one of my favorite sessions to do is to go 30 seconds with the right leg only, 30 seconds easy riding, 30 seconds with the left leg only repeat that two to three times. So six 30 second efforts, single leg, and then immediately into a high cadence hold one minute at 120 RPM. Are those single legs done at, you know, 90, 100 RPM? What's the, well, it, 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 by nature, by nature, you're going to be fairly high cadence with those in order to have a smooth pedal stroke. If you're at, you know, 80 RPM, the load on it's probably so high you're going to break down. You're not going to make it through 30 seconds anyway. This is one of those beautiful sweet spot things. When you find the right load, and typically that load on the high cadence holds is tempo 
probably 70 to 80%, maybe even up to 90% of LT. Um, we want a little bit of pressure off the pedals so that we can continue to spin. So, um, yeah, you, you'll tend to be at 90 to 100. Gotcha. That's that sweet spot. And, and again, maintaining through the tail end of that 30-second effort. Another one that we do with a lot of athletes is just straight up one-minute cadence builds, starting at whatever your self-selected cadence is and then building that cadence up to as high as you can possibly get it over the course of a minute and having an eye on the clock so that we know that it's not 100 for 30 seconds, 110 for the next 15, 112 for the next 10, and we blast five seconds of 160. How do we slowly but surely over the sweep of the clock lift that up and hold each next segment as we go up? How often are we doing this? Uh, early season, we tend to be doing some sort of neuromuscular work two days a week. Tuesdays tend to be more of a session-based, less drill-based uh, neuromuscular effort, high gear sprints, short, sharp, 10 seconds to 15 seconds, high cadence sprints, cresting hills, 30 second, just big, huge efforts with tons of rest. And then Fridays, often we're doing drill work, uh, single leg cadence work, cadence builds, things of that nature on Friday. Is it the kind of thing you can throw into the end of a, of a normal ride? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, I mean, I think it's, it's just like anything. It's one of those things that to me, though, it's best done a little bit fresh. If you've already broken down at the end of the ride, this is one of those things that maybe you can do a little bit at the end of the ride to remind yourself and your body of what this is supposed to feel like. But if you have fresher legs, you're going to be able to move through the workout with a little bit better progress and probably get a higher return out of it. One of the, the workouts I really love to give athletes to both identify issues and to help them improve is exactly working in that sort of sustained cadences. So anybody, almost anybody can hop on a bike and hit 150 RPM, which they don't care about form. And you just don't want to watch them because it looks like they're going to hit the ground. <laughs> but it's all about that control. So I love doing what are called cadence pyramids, where you start at either 90 or 100 RPM, and you do a minute at exactly that cadence. Then you go up to 110 and do a minute trying to hold that exact cadence. Go, you know, initially I'll start with athletes going up to 120, but as they get better and better, go up to 130 and 140 because you really have to learn those neuromuscular firing patterns to be able to hold that exact cadence. When it comes to neuromuscular training, there's a lot of ways to skin that cat. So we caught up with Carter Jones, a recently retired pro tour rider who has a physiology degree from the University of Colorado, and asked him some of the things he does to train the neuromuscular side. Forgive the quality of the audio. We had to talk with Carter while he was training over in Europe. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'd always do that in the. Uh, you kind of have friends from my like peppered in my rides throughout the year. Um, even on you know endurance rides, apparently it spikes uh, lipid metabolism, and uh, it just kind of gets you feeling fresh again. You know, if you've been riding like a nice endurance for all day, and you just kind of get a dull feeling in your legs so you do a couple sprints and you start to feel good again so nah, definitely something I enjoy how big are your, are your sprints is it just a, a quick effort or do you kill yourself no no yeah um, usually when I when I work on my sprinting I actually just work on really high cadence stuff so uh, like starting the sprint at like 110 RPM and seeing how high I can get up to um you know, five, 10 seconds, 
it's just just really getting working on the leg speed. Or if I do like a yeah full max sprint, like no no more than ten seconds. Okay. It's more just as you said, act, activation rather than fatigue. Yeah, something uh, Brad Huff showed me last year. You know, like I really struggle with uh, like quick accelerations. So if I could work on you know the high cadence and just getting getting that jump, you know, that could really benefit me. Sprinting is not important for a climber until it's really important. <laughs> so like sprinting doesn't matter until you find yourself, you know, at the top of the climb in a group of three sprinting for the win of a stage. And it's really important. So it's uh it's, it's definitely something to keep in mind. You know, it's like obviously you have to be able to climb to get there, but then, you know, being able to sprint is definitely a good skill to have and, you know, can really make the difference in, in results. And I know I've missed out on results in the past or haven't done as well as I'd like to just because I, you know, had a poor sprint. Are there any other tricks or things that you do for uh, neurological training and, and stability? No, for me, it's all just about keeping it as simple as possible. Um, like my, I really like lunges, you know, like body weight exercises and, uh, you know, like even like the extra step of going to a gym, like that's for, that's for the winner. <laughs> but like if I, you know, if I could just do it at home in 10 minutes before I ride, that's, that's the key. It's all about motivation for me and that's what I'll, that's when I'll actually do something. What about during the season? As I noted before, this is something that, that we go through mid-season a lot. With our athletes, we tend to look at the big picture and what their schedule looks like. If we have a weekend where we're not racing, I love the three-day block of a neuromuscular training day on day one, um, some sort of a VO2 max or sprinty sort of day on day two, and then into a threshold day or tempo day on day three. That Those blocks moving from high intensity to lower intensity – and often also shorter duration to longer duration um, have proven a, we get nice return on that. The muscles can handle that. And and so it's a great thing to, to work in throughout your season. If you race Saturday, you know, Sunday tends to be a down day, maybe some neuromuscular work Monday, some sprint work Tuesday, Wednesday, you're into your hard session of the week. Uh, if you Those three-day blocks tend to seem too big, and, and for a lot of amateur races, they are. Uh, we race Saturday, we race Sunday. Monday is an easy day, a spin day. Tuesday becomes a neuromuscular day. Wednesday becomes our heart session. Thursday we rest. Friday we pre-race. Saturday we get at it again and bang our heads against our friends. So Grant, two other questions for you. At least in the research, they've shown that you do get some neuromuscular gains on the bike from both weightlifting and also from doing some some big gear work, like those five-minute low cadence up a, a climb type work do you agree with that and do you feel they're useful yeah we we um we often do workouts called over unders five minute threshold or tempo efforts uh a minute below self-selected cadence and in self-selected cadence you're going to hear us say this a lot this is what you tend to ride at um this is if if i asked you a five minute threshold effort if you look down at three minutes in this would be where your cadence is Ideally, we want to see that 90 to 100, but different people are in different places. So if, if this workout on an over-under session, that first minute might be low cadence work, 60 RPMs. That's hard. You know, that's a big load. And then having that shift for the second minute be at an, at, at an above 
100 to 105 RPMs. And again, still holding that same wattage. So under, over, under, over, under, over. We like to do a lot of those. The three-minute big gear threshold efforts or just above threshold efforts uh, are a great early season staple for us. Um, 60 to 70 RPMs again, really over over geared sports specific strength on the bike. Really, really, again, broadening that strength base for what you're doing on the bike. Off the bike, our athletes are, are, are doing some sort of a strength session usually once a week all throughout the season, often twice a week. Um, we have riders that really have responded saying they feel stronger, they feel more in contact with the bike, uh, they feel better structured, all of those things. You know, a simple simple way to look at what we're trying to do there is our our strength strength specialists. We we use uh, Aaron Carson at Rally Sport, and and Aaron takes us through lots of single leg work, lots that's a, of balance. That's a gym work. here in Boulder. Just yes, yes. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, and it's where our Apex offices are based out of. So single leg work. Her mindset behind it is mobility, strength, flexibility, having that ability to load. Single leg works and allow us to activate the musculature and really find it in our bodies. Well, even this village idiot is now, uh, I think, quite convinced of this. Uh, this is not work that I have done in quite a long time. But even for the semi-racer like myself, sounds like the kind of thing that could make my, my bike life a little bit easier. Trevor, can you just run us through, just to remind everybody, uh, why we care about this? Okay, so... Try not to sound like that infomercial and saying you're going to instantly gain 20 watts. We're really looking at at five benefits that, that I think Grant has explained really well to neuromuscular training. And just to quickly sum them up, the first is you improve your economy and efficiency. You're going to last longer on the bike because you're going to have less muscle tearing and other issues that are associated with the coactivation we talked about. So the third one is because you have your muscles firing in the right patterns, you're going to see less overuse injury, and that's going to allow you to do bigger work later on. And the last one, which we, we touched on, but this was a really great point that that's Grant has made in the past, is if the neuromuscular firing patterns aren't there, you're going to be very unstable on the bike, and that's going to lead to a real, uh, what, he, what you call the leak of power. Which I love that term. Yeah, and I and just to expand on that a tiny little bit here as we finish up, so much of what we're doing when we're riding is is benefited by riding with a bit of a higher cadence and holding that higher cadence. You know, the old expression of spin to win and all of those things. Higher cadences are going to allow you to respond quicker to attacks, change speeds faster, get in and out of corners with more explosiveness, and neuromuscular training does so much in order to benefit that high cadence riding. It it sets you up to ride at that place much, much easier. And that leak of power that Trevor just mentioned tends to diminish. Um, we, we can get on the pedals quicker. We can turn them faster. We can respond to attacks. We can go then attack. That's what we're looking for on the bike is that ability to change speeds on a dime. That's what makes great racers. And the other really important takeaway here is time on the bike is not going to do it. You have to do dedicated work to improve that neuromuscular side. And that's a combination of single leg work, 
cadence work, both high cadence and trying to control that high cadence and some low cadence work and just some short sprint work. And the really nice thing about the neuromuscular work is with a few exceptions, it's generally not fatiguing. It doesn't beat you up the way a VO2 workout is going to beat you up. So here's a way of improving without having to worry about burning yourself out. And and as every coach will tell every athlete, remember that just because it doesn't beat you up doesn't mean it's not helping you. So this is a great way to get a big return without destroying you and a great way to piggyback on a hard session maybe the next day and really increase your return on your investment. This is sort of the rough equivalent of Rocky chasing the chickens versus going for a run, right? Is that kind of a... Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> doesn't beat you up, but it's very important. Yeah. I, I can't right. speak for the chicken. <laughs> All right. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Uh, as always, we'd love your feedback. Email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, be sure to check out our sister podcast, The Vela News Podcast. That's uh, news and banter and other things. I'm also on that one. Uh, become a fan of Vela News on Facebook at facebook.com slash Vela News and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Vela News. Fast Talk is produced by Vela News, which is owned by a competitor group. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual and are brilliant. For Trevor Connor and special guest Grant Holicky of Apex Coaching, mm. I'm Kaylee Fretz. Thanks for listening. Mm.